The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Oh, yet another evening spent podcasting. (laughs) I wouldn't have it any other way, Matt. (laughs) Well, uh, hopefully you had a good day at work. I think we're going to have a great night tonight, and we have a great show for the audience. Um, How was your day, Paul? (laughs) I do not like this new format. It was fine. Thanks for asking. How was yours, Matt? I I know you don't like small talk, Paul. I I know you keep it really close to the chest, so I'm just trying to to get the audience a little peek into how your day goes. He's still yeah, wearing a shirt and tie. It's like 10 o'clock at night, audience. No, this so. is what I sleep in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, on tonight's show, this is part one of a two-part episode on inpatient diabetes management with a fantastic guest, Dr. Dave Lieb. And Paul, before we introduce our guest host for this one, can you remind people, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. A reminder that we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I should also mention we are joined by hospitalist whiz kid, Adam Borelski. Adam, can I call you a hospitalist whiz kid? <laughs> if you must, Paul. I, yeah, I do. <laughs> hospitalist whiz kid, Adam Borelski, uh, co-producer, co-host for this particular episode. Um, Paul was absent, things. by the way, audience. Yeah, yeah. So um did all the heavy lifting because I, I wasn't there to sort of carry Matt like I usually do. So, <laughs> Adam, tell us about a little bit about what you guys talked about tonight, and and we'll we'll and I'll let Matt tell you who we talked to in a little bit more detail. Yeah, we, we had an amazing conversation with Dr. Dave Lieb, as Matt said, and um, I was very happy to join. So, Dr. Lieb walked us through a broad spectrum of inpatient diabetes care, including how to select insulin regimens, uh, what to do with oral. hypoglycemic agents when patients are admitted, what to do when patients are started on steroids, and much, much more. Yeah, and we should mention that our your co-producer for this one, co-writer, was Dr. Cyrus Askin, who was initially supposed to be partially a co-host, but, you know, parenting, unpredictable, and uh, Cyrus, we missed you on this one. Let me tell the audience about the guest, which was Dr. Dave Lieb, MD, F-A-C-E, F-A-C-P. He's an associate professor of internal medicine and program director of the endocrinology fellowship program at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. His clinical interests include thyroid disease, including nodules and thyroid cancer management, as well as type 1 and type 2 diabetes management and transgender endocrine care. When he's not in clinic or teaching, Dr. Lieb enjoys promoting the hashtag endo Twitter on Twitter and, of course, spending time with his family. In addition to your basal knowledge, Dr. Lieb will give you a bolus of sweet, sweet diabetes knowledge food. Dave, the first question I'm going to ask you, can you tell the audience, give them a one-liner about yourself, maybe tell them an interest or hobby you have outside of medicine. I am an endocrinologist, a clinical educator, and a comic book enthusiast. Uh, I'm also a proud husband uh, and father of three amazing boys who I think maybe set a record for pieces of broken furniture during the COVID lockdown. Uh, I also have cats and uh, I have type one diabetes. All right. I feel like I need to, mm. I feel like I need to come clean and mention the, that's diabetes a disclosure. the beginning. That's a, that's a big disclosure. I'm pretty biased. So you're like ultra qualified to be talking to us. 
I hope so. <laughs> right. All right. Well, I'm going to Paul usually asks about books. Uh-huh. I I uh, I I like to read graphic novels. Is graphic novels and comics same kind of thing, right? Like eventually comic issues get combined into a graphic novels. I I know sometimes yeah. they're they write them out, right? But what what is a if someone was to say, I've never read a graphic novel or a comic, what should I start with? What would you recommend? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, or maybe like two or three. You don't have to pick one. Everybody says Watchmen. Uh, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say Watchmen. Uh, that's a. That's that can be a tough read, uh, and it's not uh, everybody's uh, everybody's jam. Um, uh, All Star Superman uh, by Grant Morrison uh, is a great book. Uh, a feel good comic about sort of the first superhero. Uh, so I think I would. I would go with that one okay. if you're looking at the hero stuff. Yeah. The first line of Watchmen is pre- pretty spectacular, though. Yes. It's uh, it's very grim, but pretty pretty spectacular. What, people, what is people it? You can look that up. <laughs> something about like a burst dog's stomach or something. He's just like he he's just talking the most grim line about the city ever. Uh, it's this yep. dude standing on top of a building. It's it's yep. great. That sounds familiar. I wish I had it memorized. It'd be a lot cooler if I did, but I don't. <laughs> um, all right, Adam, we have a big topic, but probably one t- time for you to ask at least, you know, one question of Dave before we get on to the diabetes here. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Dave, um, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, some feedback that you've got that's been meaningful uh, in terms of your professional development. Oh, yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, so uh, uh, I am not the most efficient uh, person in the world. Uh, anybody that I've ever worked with or worked for will tell you that. Uh, I've gotten better, I think, over time. But probably some of the best advice I've gotten with respect to efficiency came from uh, Jim Ruler. Uh, Jim is an internist uh, in Portland. I did my residency in, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and he was one of, my, one of my teachers and mentors at the, at the VA clinic. And he said, make sure that the work you're doing is doctor work. And uh, I understand now what he, what he meant by that. You know, there's, there's work that only I could do. There's work that only nurses in our clinic could do. There's work that, that you know, only other staff members could do. And uh, I think he was trying to teach me how to delegate, which is a, a critically important leadership skill. I'm still not great at it, but I'm working on it. And the, the other piece of advice uh, I'll mention is from my, my, my grandma, Odd. Uh, may she rest in peace. So grandma used to say, uh, don't worry uh, until you really need to worry. Uh, and that's advice that I've given to friends, colleagues, patients. Uh, it's, it's, it's good advice all the time. That seems very applicable these days. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Are you are you implying that like me you worry constantly, Adam? Is that... <laughs> it's just the well, world we live in. Yeah, Adam, did you want to recommend anything to the audience? Uh, it's been a while since you've uh, co-hosted anything. I, I had not prepared a pick of the week, but but I will say uh, as spring is starting to come, that I've been watching more Gardener's World, which is a show on the BBC by Monty Don. It's it's one of the most British things that you'll ever experience. <laughs> and he every week tells you about how to garden and what to do uh, for the next week. And it's been going on for like 35 seasons. And he and his um, his dogs just walk around the gardens of Longmeadow. And it's um, really riveting. So I, I've started my indoor gardening uh, this week. 
And that's been on my mind a lot. That sounds like a great, that's a great recommendation and probably good for, probably good for anxiety as well. Uh, I, I probably should take that up. It, it's, it's a little like the great British baking show, except with a gardening theme. So if you're into that kind of thing, then I, I recommend checking it out. I think Paul and I, almost every time gardening comes up on this show, threaten to start gardens and we have not done any of that yet, but maybe my... I think I think maybe uh, may, I, I got to check that out. Thank you for that recommendation. It, it, gardening's good to start as a spectator sport, and then to work your way into it a little yes. bit later. All right. Um, so I'll start with a case from Cashlack. Uh, so David, we have Enzo, who's a 62 year old man with diabetes type two and obesity, who is admitted on our service for pneumonia. At home, he takes metformin, citagliptin combination pill, and pagliflozin, and he was recently started on dilaglutide. His last A1C was 8.4 a month ago. His labs are notable for a white count of 12,000 and a serum creatinine of 1.3. His serum glucose is 214 when he's admitted. Um, he started on ceftriaxone and azithromycin for his pneumonia. So just to start, I'm, I'm curious if you could Talk to us about how you think about managing diabetes in the hospital, just in general, from a 10,000-foot view. I think that the most important thing about managing diabetes in the hospital is to be proactive. The, the moment that you lay eyes on that person, realize that they have diabetes, you need to think about what their discharge plan is going to look like. And if you're thinking about their discharge, that'll help you a great deal, I think, in the hospital, during the hospitalization. What, what medications can they afford? Who do they live with? If you're sending them home on insulin, have they ever been on insulin before? What kind of education are they going to need during the hospitalization? Can they give themselves an injection? All of those sorts of things, I think, are pretty important. So, so being proactive and planning ahead thinking about what's going to happen after they leave. Because to me, that's probably the most significant transition is, is that leaving the hospital, getting back to their primary care team. I also think that, that every chance you have in the hospital to educate the patient and their family or their caregivers is also key. Patients are often in the hospital for a long time. Sometimes they've come in for a surgery and then they stay for care after the surgery and you can use that time to talk to them about physical activity and their diet and you know, things like checking their blood sugar and continuous monitoring. So using the opportunity for education, I think, is really key. I, I think it can be confusing in the hospital for patients because they a lot of patients start getting insulin or AccuCheX and they, they maybe, maybe have never had that before. And and they'll ask you, do I have, do I have diabetes? Why am I getting AccuCheck? This is this, I'm just talking patients without even diabetes. And it's just yeah. like, just an example that we don't tell patients enough about what we're doing to them or what to expect and just planning ahead. Like, oh yeah, if I order AccuCheck on this patient there, someone's going to come into the room four times a day and, <laughs> and check their sugar. And uh, I probably, or, and maybe even give, offer them insulin. So I need to, you need to really counsel people because people just are overwhelmed, I think, by it. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's overwhelming and it's scary. Yeah. You know, diabetes is scary. Everybody knows somebody who was on dialysis because they had diabetes or had, 
you know, blindness or something else terrifying related to diabetes. And so when, when people get their blood sugar check or get an injection of insulin, what they think is going on may be totally different from what you think is going on, you know? So you have to, yeah, you have to explain things to them, I think. Yeah. And, and a patient like this, we're going to, we're going to get into what to do with the outpatient meds, but this is a person where they're, they're on oral medications, uh, mostly maybe, well, they were recently started on, so they're not totally, uh, they were recently started on a GLP-1, so they're not totally naive to needles, but commonly you get patients who are only on orals, then yeah. in the hospital, they're getting insulin. They're like, am I going to have to have this all the time now for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I yeah. think patients, patients freak out about that sometimes, appropriately so. Absolutely. And I, I think, Dave, that your um, the recommendation matches up well with what we as hospitalists talk about all the time, which is always planning for discharge, that all, all, everything that we we do, we have to think about what's going to happen when they leave the hospital to make sure that they have a, a good, um, and safe discharge plan. And I, I, I like too what you said about that it's important to educate and be proactive about planning for this, and that when when they leave the hospital, the most important thing is um, is their their outpatient plan. I'm curious what in terms of the actual diabetes management in the hospital, what, like, what are we trying to accomplish with, uh, with managing their diabetes? And I don't mean in terms of actual target range, we'll get into that, but, but like, what's, why do we, why, why do we care about blood sugars when they're in the hospital? You have to be really patient focused. So if it's somebody that's, that's come in for bypass surgery and you're worried about a wound infection, well, you know, it's reasonable to keep their blood sugars maybe more tightly controlled because you can reduce the risk for wound infections in the future. If it's somebody that's at really high risk for hypoglycemia, an older patient, somebody that's got renal disease or liver disease, somebody who's not going to be able to grab the call button or, you know, get help if they're in trouble, uh, those people uh, you probably don't want to keep too tightly controlled. So a lot of it is really patient focused, depending on sort of what their whole picture looks like. And, uh, and, you know, you should talk to the patient and figure out what their goals are too. And it's, you know, I mean, that's always appropriate. Uh, sometimes it's easier to have those conversations than other times. But, you know, we certainly have people at Cashlack who maybe are, you know, kind of end of life patients that don't really need to have very tight glucose control. And that's a perfect example of sort of what are we what are we doing? What's the goal here? I want to ask about this guy with Enzo. We didn't make it easy on you. He's 62. He's on three oral meds plus dulaglutide. And you can also tell me how to pronounce that uh, if you would. <laughs> and, then, and then pneumonia. He, he's got pneumonia and he's getting antibiotics for that. And he's coming in with some some elevated sugar. What would you do with his outpatient meds when he comes in. I think this can be confusing for people. How would you think about these specific ones? Uh, Very confusing. Confusing for the folks that are taking care of the patient and confusing for the patient. Uh, Like you were mentioning before, Matt, where people come in and, you know, all of a sudden they're getting insulin injections and it's like, why, what's going on? This is, this isn't what I do. So Generally speaking, uh, I will stop most home medications. And there, there are a couple of reasons for that. One, there may be side effects of the medication that we want to anticipate and prevent. And the second thing is we need medications that allow us flexibility because in the hospital, the patient status may be changing from moment to moment. And insulin allows for that. Uh, Other medications are not quite as good. Uh, So as an example, he's on empagliflozin. 
and empagliflozin, and we may talk about this later, has is, is been associated with euglycemic ketoacidosis. So what if he's NPO for a procedure? You know, what if he has to get a bronch and he can't eat anything? He's at risk for becoming ketoacidotic if that medication is still on board. The, the citagliptin and the dulaglutide, uh, which you got, you nailed that, are safer medications unless there's some concern that the dulaglutide, which is new, may cause some GI distress. And the last thing you want to do is slow his gut down and have him not feel like he's eating. Unlike a sulfonylurea, those medicines only really cause insulin release when there's food around. So they're less likely to cause low sugars. So they tend to be safer, but we'll often stop them again because of the flexibility that insulin provides us. And, and metformin always gets a bad rap because of the potential risk for lactic acidosis in somebody who's got risk factors like heart failure and kidney failure. And, and again, without a crystal ball, it's hard to say, you know, is he going to have a side effect related to one of his antibiotics and develop renal failure? And then you're kicking yourself because you didn't stop the metformin. So Oftentimes, we'll, we'll use insulin and stop almost all of the outpatient medications. But the key thing is making sure that when they go home, those medicines are either restarted if it's safe, or there's some sort of communication to whoever's going to take over their care that says, we stopped the metformin because we were worried he might develop renal failure but he didn't. So it's okay to start it again. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, they end up seeing their, their doctors and they're like, well, I don't know why you're not on this anymore, but it looks like you're on insulin, mm -hmm. you know? So it, I think it's helpful to clear that up before people leave. I wanted to clarify with the sulfonylureas, do they, I thought they caused release of insulin regardless of what the sugar was doing. Is that? Yes. No, that's right. Maybe I may have said it, uh, I may have said it backwards. Yeah. As, you know, if, if somebody takes a sulfonylurea, it doesn't matter if they're eating or not, it's going to cause their, their, you know, beta cells to make insulin. And so the risk for hypoglycemia is super high, especially in a patient who may not be eating in the hospital. Whereas with the DPP-4 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists, those are really glucose dependent. So if somebody's not eating, there's a much lower risk for hypoglycemia. Okay. I, I might I might have mis misheard the first time. And uh I th I think that's I think that's a good point. That's why we we like those newer agents, right? The just mm -hmm. less less risk for hypoglycemia. The and probably because we're not gonna talk we're not gonna talk about a perioperative case tonight, but empagliflozin, the gliflozins, the SGLT2 inhibitors, I know preoperatively. It's something like three to four days. There's one of them they want you to hold for four days preoperatively. And at, as of right now, I, I don't see those being used in the hospital unless someone's maybe moving more towards discharge and maybe in some advanced heart failure units, they're yep. using those. But that's, that's where I'm seeing them is the patient that's got heart failure and would benefit from one of those medications being started on it before, probably close to, to before they go home. Yeah. And, and the, the rest of these meds, let's say that this person, let's say Enzo, we, for whatever reason, we're going to have to send them to a facility and they're waiting, but they're now eating and they've recovered from their pneumonia and they're, they might, it might be three days, like they're going to stay here the weekend, um, but they're otherwise stable. Do you, is it, is it your practice or do you think it's reasonable to restart some of those oral meds or some of those chronic meds in the hospital and get them off the insulin just for patient comfort and just to... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we definitely, that's that's been my practice at, at EVMS. And I think generally a lot of people do that too, more so probably than in the past. Okay. So to summarize for this first part here, 
we we're sizing the patient up. Um, the, the goals are going to matter based on how sick the person is and their life expectancy, all, all sorts of things like diabetes, as we were talking about ahead of time, Dave, there's always like a billion factors. It always, de- it's always complicated. It always depends on the person. That's why it's fun to practice diabetes in diabetes medicine, I think, because there's so many potential answers and ways to do things. Um, so Adam, what's next? What, what's next here? Can I just ask one one follow up question on that, Dave? Is is there ever a, are there any medications that you will continue when someone's admitted to the hospital for a non diabetes related reason if they were on as an outpatient or situations when they're admitted that you would say, well, we'll just continue their outpatient meds? I think you could probably continue a DPP-4 inhibitor. They're pretty safe drugs. And it kind of depends on how the person looks. You know, if they come into the hospital, you know, their kidney function is fine. Their liver is fine. Uh, they don't have anything really scary. You know, I'm trying to think of an example of a patient that would come in and look that healthy that we would see. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. if, you know, so I mean, sometimes- Maybe they're getting the battery and their pacemaker chains and they had to stay alive or something. <laughs> So, you know, there's there's definitely times when it's probably appropriate uh, to continue a medication that, that, you know, as long as you think about the potential risks, you know, and it's probably safe. But, but generally speaking, I think most folks would recommend stopping most non-insulin medications and using insulin. Uh, yeah. But again, it's, it's because of that flexibility. I, and I've seen, I've seen people saying that there's ongoing trials with the GLP-1s, they look promising, mm-hmm. but... Then you just worry so many patients in the hospital already have stomach upset or poor intake. And, and I think that seems like it might be the limiting factor. Yes. Yeah. And the DPP-4s don't really have that. Right. So that's one of the reasons that the, and, and, and that's why I would probably consider that one instead of the dulaglutide. Okay. So Adam, now uh, what, what's, what's next for Enzo? Yeah. So, um, so he's admitted to the service. He started on the antibiotics uh, and now we are figuring out how to treat his diabetes. So we decided to start him on insulin. And uh, just for our general benefit, he weighs 90 kilograms. Um, so before we actually talk about the specific regimen that we'll start him on, can you just walk us through the basic types of insulin? I get very personally very confused about all the different short-acting intermediate acting, rapid acting, ultra rapid acting, long acting insulin. So if you could walk us through some of those, that would be great. There are so many insulins and so many insulins that showed up in our, you know, in the sample closet in the last couple of years, all kinds of new things. Um, uh, Insulin just celebrated its 100th birthday. Uh, The first injection was on January 11th, uh, 1922 uh, in Toronto General Hospital. Uh, and if you want to read a really great book about insulin, The Discovery of Insulin by Michael Bliss uh, is a classic. Uh, if you're interested in the history of medicine, that's a fantastic book. It's a great uh, story with uh, some people that don't like each other and intrigue <laughs> that ends ends with people sharing uh, a Nobel Prize. And then two really great reviews of insulin that I recommend everyone read. Uh, one uh, is by Emily Sims and Carmela Evans-Molina uh, and their colleagues that was published in Nature Medicine last year. And another is by Earl Hirsch and his colleagues that was published in Endocrine Reviews in 2020. They're both fantastic. They talk about sort of the physiology of insulin and the history of insulin and, and why all these different um, uh, insulins exist. And, and we can link to those in the show notes too. Awesome. 
So, you know, basically you need insulin that can help you in three different ways. You need insulin that mimics the low-level continuous basal insulin secretion from the pancreas that we see throughout the day. You know, that insulin is supposed to suppress hepatic glucose production between meals and overnight. So you don't wake up with hyperglycemia. And you need to uh, address postprandial spikes in glucose. So there's postprandial or mealtime insulin. And then third, you have to have insulin that can address high blood sugars or correctional insulin. Fortunately, in the hospital, our options are often somewhat limited because you have what's on formulary and that's what you're going to (laughs) use. And you don't have to worry about the 100 different types of insulin that exist. But on discharge, that's a whole different story. And that's where the clinical pharmacy and the pharmacist really helps us and our patients tremendously. Again, sort of planning ahead for when the person goes home. If you think they're going to be on insulin for the first time, you know, work with the pharmacy to find out what they're going to be able to afford, what's on their insurance plan, you know, what their copay might be. You know, basically in the hospital, we use basal insulins like Glargine. Glargine's been around for 20 years. We'll use insulin Detamir, which is a 12 to 20 hour insulin. So instead of lasting 24 hours, it lasts less time. It's often helpful in folks that have kidney disease where the insulin may kind of hang around longer. And then for rapid-acting insulin for meals, we'll use insulin uh, Lyspro or insulin Aspart. Kind of now they're older rapid-acting insulins because now we have rapid rapid-acting insulin analogs too. <laughs> but those aren't probably going to be on formularies in the hospital. Yeah, probably not yet. Mm-mm. And w- with the with the insulin with the insulin management. Um, I mean, there's so, so many questions to ask about this. I mean, maybe, maybe we should start about how, how do you size someone up like Enzo 90 kilograms was on four drugs at home, but no insulin. So how would you, how would you think about this? Yeah. So one of, one of the things about, about Enzo is he's on all these medications, but his A1C is 8.4. So he's not doing great. You know, he should probably have an A1C closer to seven and a half. So he's not well controlled on what he is taking, although I think the dulaglutide was recently started, so we maybe haven't given it a fair shake. But he's probably going to need a fair amount of insulin while he's in the hospital. Uh, So you don't necessarily need to be afraid with a larger dose, um, just based on how much medication he's on and the fact that his glucose values are still high if he's taking it, you know, regularly. So those are all important things to ask. He's kind of a big guy, you know, he's 90 kilos. uh, So uh, he may need a little bit more insulin for that reason. Uh, He's sick. uh, So he has a lot of inflammatory cytokines in his body, which are going to increase insulin resistance. That may, uh, you know, make him need more insulin too. I always tell the endocrine fellows, if anybody ever asks you a question and you're kind of trapped and you don't know what to say, you could always say inflammatory cytokines. (laughs) Because nobody... And the other thing is binding proteins. <laughs> well, maybe there's been a change in binding proteins. Uh, and that usually is just going to shut down an attending pretty quickly because what are they going to say? There could have been a change in binding proteins. <laughs> but, but what about the weight base? Do you, do you subscribe to this weight base? You want to get a sense of what might be a total daily dose for this person. And I've seen yeah. the ranges thrown out there. What do you think is this? Because we want to be about safety, right? We don't want to cause a hypoglycemic event. So if if you did like the 0.2 to 0.3 units per kilogram, you know, sometimes that number seems scary for someone that weighs 100 kilograms and hasn't been on insulin before and you're giving them 20 or 30 units the yeah. first time they've ever taken it. Yep. So what what do you suggest 
to, to start? So, I, you know, we have order sets at our hospital uh, that are weight-based, and, mm-hmm. and that's exactly where they start, you know, 0.2 to 0.3 units per kilo for basal insulin, and then 0.075 units per kilo uh, of their mealtime insulin with each of their meals three times a day. You can always give more insulin. It's really hard to take insulin away. So if you start low, that's fine, but just be ready to increase it. And you can, you can feel more comfortable being more aggressive. Uh, I think there are two different times that you feel more comfortable being aggressive with insulin. One is seeing what's happening to that patient uh, over time. But the other is just the more experience you have managing diabetes in the hospital. So for, so for residents you know, uh, that rotate with us, I really try to help them to feel comfortable with insulin dosing, to come up with a dose of what they think is right, and then I'll come up with a dose of what I think is right. Uh, and maybe we'll go in between and then see what happens to that person the next day, but make a conscious effort to say, oh, you know, he did okay, or she did okay with that amount of insulin. It wasn't too much, or they needed more. Or Dr. Lee was totally wrong, and I was totally right, and that person got hypoglycemic last night, and I was right. So that happens too. And I think, Dave, this would be a good time just to talk about what the targets are for inpatient insulin. This is a favorite question of attendings like me, uh, specifically to medical students on round. So if you could kind of clarify what, what we're striving to see with our finger sticks. So this is a great story. I think just in medicine and healthcare in general, uh, certainly in hospital medicine. So I started my endocrine fellowship in 2006. And at that point, we were living in a post Leuven world. So Reet Vandenberg uh, and her group at the University of Leuven in Belgium had published a series of really incredible and incredibly influential studies in the New England Journal of Medicine about patients uh, specifically in critical care settings and the benefits of tight glycemic control in those settings. The first study came out in 2001. The second study came out in 2006. And those studies really led to sort of a huge change, I think, in how diabetes was managed in the hospital. So in the first study, it was in patients in the surgical ICU and basically uh, keeping a tight goal of 80 to 110 versus a conventional goal of 180 to 200, the patients that were on the intensive arm did better. They were more likely to survive. They had less complications. Everything was coming up roses. And everybody was like, oh my gosh, we need to start uh, tightening our glucose control for everybody. When the medical ICU study came out five years later, it wasn't quite as rosy, but it was still pretty exciting. And so people are like, okay, this 80 to 110 thing still kind of makes sense. Maybe mortality's just not that great for people in a medical ICU, but maybe length of stay was changed a little bit. But the big critique of those studies was it's one center, University of Leuven, Belgium, that's it. And Greet did things her way in that center and in those studies. And that's where Nice Sugar came in, which was a multi-center trial that included patients that were both in surgical and medical ICUs. And they randomized people to that Leuven goal of 80 to 120 versus more conventional therapy of less than 180. And lo and behold, the intensive therapy was associated with a higher 90-day mortality uh, compared to the conventional therapy and six times the rate of severe hypoglycemia. So hypoglycemia, that required somebody to assist the person with their management. So everything started to shift back a little bit. And currently, most guidelines and consensus statements, whether it's from ACE or the American Diabetes Association or the Endocrine Society, um, most recommend 
a fasting goal of less than 140 uh, and a postprandial goal of less than 180 in most hospitalized patients. Uncontrolled hyperglycemia is associated with with longer hospitalizations and infections uh, and increased mortality. But inpatient hypoglycemia is very real and associated with significant morbidity. So in patients that are at high risk for low blood sugars, higher targets may be reasonable in those folks. That was kind of a long answer. <laughs> that was great. It, it's great to have that background. I, I, I didn't know quite to that detail. I, I knew it was like, Bad, bad things happened when we tried to go, when we tried to be more strict. The, the, ADA, the ADA puts out these standards for diabetes care in the hospital. And I think the most recent ones, they have, I think it's both 16.5. They say more stringent goals, one, 110 to 140 might be okay for some patients. But, you know, it's like, I think everyone's just wanting to avoid that hypoglycemia. And yeah. like we said, like most, most patients... I think if you keep them even between 100 and 200, I think you're doing okay for the most part. If you look at the hospitals I've worked in, yeah, like uh, absolutely, not a lot of bad things are going to happen uh, if if you do that for the near term. No, for sure not. This episode is brought to you by Bambi, and guess what, curbsiders? This is a small business. We are running a small business, and we are we are clinicians. We don't know what we're doing as business owners, and that's why I'm so glad that Bambi exists because Bambi is an HR platform for small businesses that just don't have the time or expertise to do this on their own. And let's face it, one complaint against your company, that can turn your whole world upside down, but the good news is that Bambi is here to help small business owners implement good HR practices. Here's what Bambi is. They're an HR platform built for businesses like yours, so you can automate the most important HR practices and get your own dedicated HR manager. First, Bambi's HR autopilot is going to automate your core policies, workplace training, and even employee feedback. And then your dedicated HR manager from Bambi is going to help you navigate the more complex parts of HR and guide you to compliance. They're available by phone, email, or real-time chat. This kind of work from an in-house HR manager will cost you like 80 grand a year, but with Bambi, it starts at just $99 a month. So you run your business and let Bambi run your HR. Go to Bambi.com slash curb right now for your free HR audit, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash curb. That's Bambi.com slash curb. This episode is brought to you by Grammarly. And Curbsiders listeners, you know that we are a fan of Grammarly. They've been sponsoring the show for a while now, and there's a reason. It's because I like to use Grammarly. Grammarly helps save me time, and it helps me with a lot of different things because we're putting out weekly show notes, sending weekly emails, we're emailing guests, and we don't want to mess that up. Let me tell you about some of my favorite features of Grammarly. Now, first of all, my co-host, Paul Williams, he has a problem with tone where he tends to sound sarcastic or maybe bitter. And he doesn't want to do that because he wants he wants more friends. Right, Paul? So Grammarly helps him with tone, with its built-in tone detector, so he can sound more friendly or casual. Personally, my favorite part is when Grammarly suggests that I rewrite hard-to-read sentences because I tend to make things too complicated. And speaking of, Grammarly tells me, hey, maybe cut out this word. It seems to be extra. Grammarly is going to make your writing more clear, more effective. So get through those emails and your work quicker by keeping it concise, confident, and effective with Grammarly. 
Go to Grammarly.com slash Curb to sign up for a free account. And when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, get 20% off for being a Curbsiders listener. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash Curb. Grammarly.com slash Curb. So we had... And I, I wanted to just swing back just so, because we we went through it a little bit quick, but when we were starting the, the estimating the total daily dose of insulin, we were saying um, it would be 0.3 units per kilogram would be basal. So that mm-hmm. for, for our 90 kilogram patient, that would be like around 30. And then yep. you said that for the, the mealtime insulin, it would be a 0.75. So is something yeah. like that or so it's 0. like maybe... Yeah, the, the order set that we have says 0.075, but, but so... Oh, 0.075, the, Yeah, it. yeah. The mealtime insulin, when you add it all up together, three meals a day, should be about equal to the basal insulin. Got it. So okay. if you calculate out that they need 30 units of basal insulin, then maybe they need 30 units of mealtime insulin, 10, you know, 10 units with each of the, the meals, mm-hmm. something like that. Okay. You know, you can kind of use that as a, as a guesstimate. Yeah. If the if the patient's on insulin at home, you can start from there and find out are they having hypoglycemia on those doses? You know, is it too much and needs to be cut back? You know, is is their basal insulin covering some of their meals? You know, if it doesn't quite match up with how much they're taking for their meals and how much basal they're taking, uh, they may be over basalized, and you may need to cut back on that. Uh, so looking at what, what was going on at home in patients that, that are already on insulin can be incredibly useful too. I see. So if the person, if Enzo was on 30 units with, uh, 30 units at night at home and 10 units with meals, we would decide, does this, and how's he doing? Is he running hyperglycemic all the time? Maybe we don't need to change anything, but if he comes in and he's not eating anything and he's been having some lows, we might need to lower his home insulin. And do you do like the 20% or something like that? Do you have any just like rules of thumb that the audience can maybe think like if someone's coming in, you want to lower the, the home insulin? Yeah, 15 to 20% uh, is fine. Uh, I don't know that that's based in any kind of hard science. It's the, it's the magic of endocrinology. <laughs> and, and, and that's even with all those <laughs> inflammatory cytokines floating around. Well, I mean, it depends on how many inflammatory cytokines there are. I'm pretty sure that yes. there's an assay you can <laughs> measure them. So, yeah. All right. So, so uh, yeah. Go ahead, Adam. Oh, so I was just going to say. So for um, for Enzo, he's 90 kilograms. His blood sugars at home don't seem very well controlled on four medications. Um, what what dose would you start him on if if you're willing to do a little bit of uh, on-the-spot math for our yeah. audience. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it'd be reasonable to start him on 30 units of Glargine uh, as a place to start. And, you know, someone who's never been on insulin before, not really sure how, how, how good an appetite he's going to have in the hospital. If I'm using fixed doses of mealtime insulin, uh, I might be a little bit more cautious. Uh, I may not jump to 10 units with each of his meals. I may use five or six units and then kind of creep up. Or, you know, insulin naive, if I'm kind of nervous, I may start him on, you know, 20, 25 units of basal insulin, again, with the plan of increasing that, you know, as I get to know the patient. So if he was uh, somebody who's drinking tons of alcohol, we're not sure the status of his liver, or yep. if his kidney function was worse, or if he was yep. underweight, you know, some some glycemic 
some hypoglycemia risk factor, you might, you might do it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Less insulin if he's at risk for hypoglycemia. And Adam and I were chatting about this. We, I don't know why this happens and maybe I just never understood it, but a lot of the standard order sets at places I've worked and I've worked a lot of places at this point seem to have this four times a day correction scale. So at bedtime, they're giving a rapid acting insulin, even though the person's not eating. And I, I just never understood that. Do you, and, and when you read about it, it always says the the corrections given three times a day, but a, a lot of, have you seen this where the order sets have a fourth correction? Oh yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I, uh, and I do not like it. Uh, I am with, uh, I am with you all on this in our institution. We, we don't give correction insulin at bedtime, although it still happens. Um, you know, some patients are going to be high before they go to bed and would benefit from rapid acting insulin. Uh, you may not give them that full correctional dose that you've got ordered after meals, but you know, if somebody's, 300 before they go to bed, it may be because you were kind of light on their basal insulin earlier in the day because you were still kind of getting to know them. Uh, And that's why it's important to follow up later in the day and see what's happened. Mm -hmm. So we do that using the Royal Wee because we have uh, four fantastic endocrinology fellows at EVMS. And it's the fellows that are doing the chart checking later in the day and making decisions about adding that extra dose of Lantus or giving a correction dose. Sometimes we'll put orders in the chart if we're particularly concerned about somebody, for the nurse to see regarding, hey, if the glucose is such and such at nine o'clock, you know, give us a call because we may want to make, you know, some sort of an adjustment there. It And this person, I, I mean, the first day in the hospital, I, I think I, I also saw some some places saying you could maybe just start a basal and correction scale for the, to initially get a sense of what it's going to be. And then I guess yep. you can always add a, a standing prandial dose of insulin. Um, is that something that, that you think is okay to do as well? Absolutely. You know, if somebody comes into the hospital and they've got a blood sugar that's particularly high, those folks probably aren't going to fly on basal insulin alone. You know, if somebody's blood sugar is 250 when they hit the door, those people may need mealtime insulin in addition to basal insulin. But if they're pretty well controlled on a small number of oral medications, they're probably going to be fine with one injection of basal insulin and then correction. And you can always look to see how much correction they get throughout the day and add it in as mealtime insulin if you need to. And let me let me ask you the, the flip side of this, Dave, because this comes up all the time. You know, in training, we were always taught that sliding scale insulin oh, or correctional scale it. insulin by <laughs> itself it. is it. completely verboten. And, um, and yet... And yet in the hospital that I practice in and the other hospitals that I've worked in, um, we see it all the time. So I'm yeah. curious if, if, uh, if you would recommend against this. Is this never appropriate to use sliding scale insulin? Uh, I know the ADA recommends against it, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Be, be still my endocrine heart <laughs> sliding scale insulin. Uh, so I, I don't like the term sliding scale because historically, sliding scale insulin meant reactive inpatient glycemic control. So someone comes in, they've got type 1 diabetes, I will put them on a scale so that if, they're, if they go above 150, we'll give them one unit for every 50 over 150. Wait, they've got type 2 diabetes, make it two units for every 50 uh, over 150. And so those people were hyperglycemic for their entire hospital stay, and they got a lot of insulin that was really correctional insulin. 
based on the color of their urine or something like that, right? Yeah. Wasn't that? Yes. The- <laughs> I can tell you a story about that too. <laughs> Maybe I will. When I was a when I was a, a, a medical student at UVA, there was a week where we had a different attending every day because our attending was out sick. And one of the attendings was uh, was an older gentleman uh, who was really really well known for some of the rhinovirus studies that he had done at Virginia. And we were talking about, you know, the basal insulin and the mealtime insulin and making this adjustment and making another adjustment. And at some point, he just sort of slammed his hand down on the table and he said, you know, it used to be so much easier before we did all these finger sticks. You just measured their urine and you figured out a single dose of insulin (laughs) in the morning and you were done. And we were like, that's, we can't do that anymore. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. So the, the Journal of Hospital Medicine, ironically... Uh, this year had another uh, article that came out and it was called, it was called something like uh, inpatient glycemic control with sliding scale insulin in non-critical patients with type two diabetes who can slide. Yeah. And this was, well, this was August, 2021. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ironically, because the JHM also has the things we do for no reason, which is give uh, correction scale or sliding scale insulin as monotherapy. Yeah. But but now they're saying, and I think this was observational, uh, this, this, so I don't know that this would be practice changing for you, but did you, are you aware of that one or had you seen that? Yeah, it was, a, 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 I think, a retrospective chart review by the group uh, at Emory in Atlanta. And, um, and Emory is like, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big, well-known place for endocrinology, but especially for, uh, for inpatient diabetes management. And that's because the incoming president of the ADA, Guillermo Ompierrez, is, is there. And Guillermo uh, is one of my friends and has published just everything about inpatient diabetes that you can possibly manage and imagine. And he was the senior author on that study. But it was Guillermo's work with the rabbit trials probably decades ago that led to stopping using sliding scale and using basal bolus for patients, uh, showing that it was that it was more effective. But basically... Uh, they did a, a retrospective review of, of over 25,000 uh, adults with type 2 diabetes, and they found that about 30% of them were being treated with sliding scale insulin only. If their blood sugar was less than 180 when they came into the hospital, about 85% of them did just fine. But if their blood sugar was high, you know, greater than 200, greater than 250, the number of people that had successful glucose control based on their targets was less than 20%. So they recommended the cautious use of sliding scale insulin for certain patients with more mild hyperglycemia, which makes sense. And honestly, we do that, you know, kind of similar, Matt, to what you said. If there's somebody that comes in, you know, it's not always wrong to put them on basal and correction. They don't need basal mealtime and correction insulin. But the key is we're calling it correction insulin and not sliding scale. Ugh, sliding, sliding scale. <laughs> so I think... Um, uh, what's most important about how we manage inpatient diabetes in 2022 versus the past is we're much more proactive about glycemic control and much less reactive. And so I think that's what's, so as long as people are thinking about it and have a good reason for using correction insulin only rather than putting them on basal insulin or more, I think it's fine. You just have to watch how they do and adjust the next yeah. day. Probably the wrong move is not to just keep boosting up the correction scale. If if they're needing a lot of insulin, probably they need a basal added in and you can keep the correction exactly. scale too. Is that 
You, yes. Do you recommend doing that? Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing is, uh, remember that people with type 1 diabetes need basal insulin and mealtime insulin. Yeah. Uh, it happens way too often uh, that, you know, they don't. So, so basically, Dave, just what you're saying is that we should still take the liberty of trying to personalize these recommendations to our patients that come in. So if someone has mild diabetes, you know, with well-controlled blood sugars and um, are not on a lot of medications and don't have that many inflammatory cytokines floating around, it, it might be appropriate to just do um, correctional insulin as long as we brand it that way and not say sliding scale. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, and keep watching them. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's shift gears a little bit and um, talk about how to actually titrate insulin for Enzo while he's in the hospital. So we started him on 30 units of glargine in the evening and then um, five or six units with meals. Let's say his blood sugars over the next 24 hours ranged in the, you know, high 100s to low 200s range. He used a total of eight units of correctional insulin in addition to his mealtime insulin. How, how would you go about trying to... Um, better control his blood sugars while he's in the hospital the next day. I always try to think about that, that 50-50 balance. How much basal insulin are they getting and how much mealtime insulin are they getting? And is it relatively balanced for the most part? So if I started off low on the mealtime for whatever reason, because I was worried about how much he was eating or whatnot, but he's doing pretty good with the basal dose, he probably needs an increase in his mealtime if he's running high throughout the day. If he's going to bed with a high blood sugar, let's say he's you know uh, uh, you know two hundred and he drops a hundred points overnight, then I know he's probably getting too much basal insulin because he shouldn't be dropping that much. So I would reduce his basal insulin. I, I tend to look at the correction insulin that's been given and try to divvy it up into the basal and the mealtime as necessary, kind of based on where I, where I think it should go. But one of the key things with inpatient glycemic management is talking to the patient and talking to the patient's nurse, because you can make decisions based on what you see in the chart. And there could be, you know, something from left field that you didn't know about, like the, a friend brought somebody, you know, uh, a Cinnabon, you know, Yes, <laughs> to, con- to congratulate them on getting through their their bypass surgery, you know, and so so and you know they they may not tell anybody about it. They may not tell the nurse, you know. There may be an insulin order for snacks and whatever, and if they don't tell anybody, nobody knows. So their blood sugar is three hundred and fifty the next morning, and they don't know why. So you just kind of have to keep asking, well, did you eat anything? Did you eat anything? You have to be careful about it because often the answer is yes, I did eat something or gosh, I've had diabetes for 30 years and I always have a snack at bedtime. You know, that's a pretty common thing because we used to use NPH insulin, which peaked overnight. So people were at risk for lows. So everybody had a snack at bedtime, but that's not really necessary anymore. You don't want to accuse people of overeating or kind of ruining your plans. You know, you need to kind of understand where they're coming from and be gentle about, you know, the advice that you give because they may have a really good reason for why they eat certain things at night. Or on the flip side, somebody could be getting tube feeds and their insulin is going and the tube feeds are held and they have a low blood sugar. 
So you have to you have to pay attention to all of those different factors. So when I when I talk to especially to the medical students, but also the residents and the fellows, I want to know what the patient's basal insulin is, what their mealtime insulin is, and what their correction insulin is. But I also want to know what their diet is because that is just as important as the insulin in helping me to figure out what their you know what their their blood sugars are doing and why they're doing what they're doing. It can be hard to get a stable data set with the patient you know, their NPO. And then that day, the patients, they, they ate a piece of chocolate cake that day. That's why they were running high and where they got a shot of steroid somewhere, which we'll talk about in a minute here. So there's just all these factors that seem to happen in the hospital. Right. Or they, or they got dialyzed, uh, Uh, or, uh, they're just getting better. Yeah. You know, and as they're getting better, uh, they may need less insulin. They've had a surgery. They're recovering from the surgery. They're getting better. They're maybe more active. Um, uh, one of the one of the lessons that I've learned over time and that I try to teach uh, is, you know, don't don't jump on a single episode unless it's a real unless it's a low blood sugar. Like low blood sugars, you probably need to be more aggressive about adjusting insulin to try to prevent it. Um, you don't want to see somebody drop to thirty two days in a row before you make a decision to do something. But you know, some people are going to have a day where they're kind of high, and you may throw your hands up and have no idea why they were high. Uh, and then the next day they can get the same amount of insulin and do a lot better. Uh, and, and if you, uh, and I mean, this happens to people at home too. And it's, it's one of the, the banes of our existence having diabetes, uh, is that you could do the exact same thing two days in a row, uh, and have totally different blood sugars both days and never be able to explain it. Um, in the hospital, it's rare that two days are the same, but, um, give it a little bit of time. Look for a pattern. Uh, if time, you know, if you have time to look for a pattern before you make a change, because otherwise you put people on a roller coaster uh, and nobody likes that. Yeah. And I guess we, we don't really have hypoglycemia. We hadn't had planned on dis- discussing it, but I'll just give you, let's say that he had a sugar of 55. He got 30 units of insulin. He had a sugar of 55 one morning and they gave him uh, some juice and he felt better. How would you adjust, how might you adjust the basal insulin? Is it, is it a 20% decrease or is it, is it just sort of your a, a gestalt? Uh, the magic of endocrinology. The magic. Uh, um, uh, you know, 20% is a good number to go with. Uh, but you can also look at other things. Um, you know, was this somebody who wasn't on insulin before they came in the hospital and wasn't requiring much medication and had an A1C of 6.5? You know that person, you might be pretty aggressive with cutting back their their basal insulin. Uh, you know, maybe they, again they're post op and they're getting better, and you just know that they're probably not going to need that much when they go home. You yeah. know, are they not eating anything, and that's part of the problem? Uh, is there something else that's going on with their kidney function, or um, you know, some sort of GI issue? So there are reasons why you might be more aggressive with reducing insulin. Um, uh, what can happen sometimes is the insulin just gets held. Uh, and that's another like, ah, like, please, <laughs> like, you know, just call, you know, call somebody before you just hold it completely. Uh, you know, uh, uh, so you don't necessarily want to hold insulin completely, but you may want to be pretty aggressive with reducing it depending on what's going on. All right. So I'm going to try to summarize what we talked about with this here. We, so we, we had talked about way back that our pre-meal we're looking for sugars under 140. That's what a lot of the guidelines say. And post postprandial under 180. Um, we were we were saying that in general, 
you don't want any lows. You don't want high highs. So if if they're in that, I think 100 to 200 range or 100 to 180 range, something like that, most people are okay. But uh, we talk, we just talked about lowering by 20% or something like that if they're having lows because we want to avoid that. And we talked about there's lots of different insulins, but generally patients are going to be getting a basal insulin. We, we talked about how to weight base dose that something like 0.2 to 0.3 units per kilogram. And we talked about they might, we might start them on a prandial insulin, or we might just start them on a correction scale to start with, and then figure out how much prandial insulin they're going to need. And then none of us liked the correction scale at bedtime, uh, as a standard, um, especially if the patient's not eating a nighttime snack. Adam, anything I'm missing from that recap before? I know we have some other stuff we're going to talk about here with this case, but anything else I'm missing from that recap? And it, yeah, the, the other thing I would say is that when we're titrating the insulin, usually using whatever the correctional dose is and thinking about what's happened to the patient over the past 24 hours that may have explained some of the abnormal blood sugars. And, um, and if you can't come up with anything, then try to split that in a reasonable way between the long acting and the, and the preprandial insulin. Is that right, That's Dave? A good point. Yeah. The, the patient's yep. story, I think a, a big part of what this is the patient's story. Like what did they, what happened? What did they eat? Did they actually get the insulin? Uh, and, and, uh, maybe, maybe we should ask about timing. I don't think we really talked about that. Now I, I think sometimes you're not certain if the patient's going to eat or not. What do you think is the ideal time to time the short acting, the rapid acting insulins that they're getting with meals. Yeah. So the, so the ideal situation is, you know, exactly what they're going to eat and how much of it. And you give them the insulin 20 minutes before, mm. uh, but in reality, so that's not gonna happen. <laughs> that doesn't happen. So, um, uh, you know, sometimes we'll put in an order that says if the patient eats all of their meal, give them this much fixed dose insulin if they eat half of their meal, give them this much uh, so that there's some wiggle room there. Um, oftentimes, the patients don't get the insulin until after they've eaten, uh, which is not optimal. Uh, however, um, you know, you may be kind of dependent on how busy the nurses are, on how busy food services is, whether the trays are coming up to the floor. And the last thing you want to do is give somebody a lot of insulin and then have the food not be there. Um, you know, or like you mentioned, you know, the patient that's nauseated maybe only eats a little bit or has gastroparesis and doesn't finish it. Uh, so it's often reasonable to give people uh, their insulin at the time that they're eating or after they're eating. Uh, it's not what we recommend in the outpatient setting, uh, yeah. but for mm-hmm. the inpatient setting, it, it makes a lot of sense. And, and is there is there a standard um, a standard definition of a, what the diabetic diet is? Because I've, I've had patients on, on a quote diabetic diet and, uh, have, you know, (laughs) ordered sodas and other things that just seem to throw their blood sugars all over the place. And I'm curious if that's, if that's just a, an us thing at Cashlack Mid-Atlantic or if that's an everyone thing. The diabetic diet is, is carb consistent so that people know they're going to get about 60 grams of carbohydrate per meal. Uh, and, um, the, the problem with that is it doesn't necessarily prevent that person from asking for more things that also have carbohydrates. So uh-huh. unless they have a nurse who's particularly, you know, 
you know, thoughtful and kind of preventive, uh, you know, that person may say, gosh, uh, for a, I'm really hungry still. Can I have a snack? And, you know, their snack could be, you know, a lean cuisine meal that's got another 60 grams of carbohydrate <laughs> in it. And then they eat that. And then it's like, you know, so I love it when patients are like, you know, eating the cereal and eating the like pancakes and then saying, why do you guys, you know, why are you giving us this food? Like, what kind of a diabetic diet is this? <laughs> like, you're, you're eating it like it looks like it's a good diet. So, I, it, and I also think within reason, patients that want it, they don't want to eat the diabetes friendly diet that's on the menu. And they say, I, I eat at home the way I eat at home. So I want to eat that way here. And sometimes yeah. patients are really adamant about that. And I, I'm just like, okay, within reason, you know, I will yeah. try to say, Hey, listen, like you, you have a foot infection and it, it, this may just be harder. Your sugar's running the 300s, 400s. Can we just do this just until we get things under control? I try to negotiate, but I, sometimes patients, if they're coming in and diabetes isn't really that front and center and, and we're just managing it, they'll be like, can I have a regular diet? And I will order mm -hmm. it because they're like, I know what to order. I'm not going to go crazy. So I do think that I just wanted to make that point as well. Some of our, yep. give our patients credit. A lot of them do are really savvy. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and a lot of patients learn about carb counting and about carbohydrates while they're in the hospital. Um, one of the things that our hospital does that I really like is on the menu, they have the carbohydrates listed for every food mm. so that when patients order things, they can kind of see. And uh, you should take the time to explain things to them. Um, uh, but I definitely do some, uh, some detective work when I'm in the room, uh, you know, kind of looking around, looking for bags of, uh, you know, of Skittles or, uh, you know, empty bottles of soda, uh, that might be around. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I like what you said about negotiating, uh, because people have to be comfortable being in the hospital is not a fun experience for anybody. Uh, and food is very comforting for people. So you have to think about that too. I wanted to give one more little twist to Enzo's case here before we talk about discharge planning for Enzo. Enzo, let, well, let's say that for whatever reason, well, let's say he also had COPD and also this pneumonia threw him into what we thought was a COPD exacerbation. He's wheezing a lot, not having fevers anymore, but we, we start on 40 milligrams of prednisone daily for the next five days. And that after the first 24 hours, his glucose is just running in the 300s. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, because it's so common, our patients in the hospital are on steroids and, and need, need management of diabetes or steroid-induced diabetes. Hey, everyone. I wanted to provide a quick update from Dr. Lieb and a caveat to this next section you're about to hear. On the original recording, he recommended that a person on 60 milligrams prednisone would get 0 0.6 units per kilogram of NPH to go along with their steroid-induced hyperglycemia. However, after the fact, he put out a Twitter thread talking about a cap of 0 0.3 or 0 0.4 units per kilogram, no matter how much prednisone the person's on. And as always, you got to scale that back if the person has risk factors for hypoglycemia. We will link to that in the episode description and in the show notes. For safety reasons, we just wanted to make that point crystal clear. Yes, yeah, steroids. Uh, steroids are a mystery. Um, uh, they tend to cause postprandial hyperglycemia uh, mostly, uh, and um, it can be really difficult to predict 
how much insulin somebody is going to need when they get started on steroids. Uh, if somebody is getting a big whopping dose of steroids, like a stress dose because they're septic, uh, or if somebody has acute transplant rejection, they're getting ridiculous doses of methylpred, um, I'm pretty quick to use an insulin drip because otherwise it's going to be really hard to predict what they need. And they're going to become pretty hyperglycemic, especially if they're already on a fair amount of insulin when you start. Um, for someone who's, uh, who's never been on insulin, uh, who's uh, relatively, uh, has a relatively well-controlled A1C, I might be more cautious. Uh, sometimes I'm surprised and you kind of you think people are going to need a bunch of insulin and then they don't. Um, so you really have to watch people. Uh, one, of the, one of the tricks that I like is using a little NPH with the dose of prednisone. Uh, NPH lasts about 12 hours. Uh, and it peaks after, uh, you know, kind of halfway through uh, after the injection. And, um, and the steroid effect kind of lasts about 12 hours from the morning to the evening. Uh, and it kind of peaks because it, people tend to have their highest blood sugar sort of, you know, around dinner time. Uh, so giving NPH can really help. And uh, there's this uh, beautiful uh, paper uh, from Endocrine Practice uh, in 2009 uh, John Clore and Linda Thurber Hay at, at Virginia Commonwealth University, just down the road from where I am. Uh, and uh, in that paper, there's a table. And in that table, they explain how to determine the dose of NPH. Uh, and this is the recommendation. So let's say um, you're giving somebody 60 milligrams of prednisone like this guy. And to make the math easy, uh, let's say he weighs 100 kilos. He's a pretty big guy. Um, so you take 100 for 100 kilos, and you multiply it by 0.6. If it was 40 milligrams of prednisone, you would multiply it by 0.4. If it was 30 milligrams, you know, 0.3, et cetera. Um, uh, And it it seems to work pretty well. I don't know that it's an evidence-based thing or an experience-based thing. Uh, But again, a lot of insulin dosing is just trying to find a place to start. Uh, And that's a way to come up with a place to start. This would be a total daily dose, uh, 0.6 times, like if they're on 60 of prednisone, you said it was 0.6 times 100 for 100 kilos? Yeah, times their weight in kilos. But it's okay. uh, it's just to cover the steroid effect. Just so, to cover the steroid effect. So, yeah, so if somebody's already on basal insulin and they're getting mealtime insulin, you may add some NPH on top of that to cover the steroid effect. Mm-hmm. So they, they may be on... Long-acting glargine plus mealtime insulin, and then you'd add on the NPH to cover the steroids. Mm-hmm. And you that could, just seems like a whopping dose, 60 <laughs> units of NPH. Uh, I probably wouldn't start with 60. Uh, I might give I, 10. <laughs> I, would, I, I would probably start with more than 10, but I would be cautious. Uh, okay. But again, it's really giving you sort of an idea of, gotcha. of, of where where to start from. So um, okay. I've, I've definitely used this trick before and it seems like it works. And when they're able to stop the steroids, they can stop the NPH mm-hmm. as well, which is, which is nice. Yes. Um, yes. But, but this is only with, just to clarify, this is only with prednisone, correct? With other steroids like Dex or methylpred. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's, it's typically with prednisone, other steroids that have a longer half-life, uh, it may not be as effective. Um, so typically it's with prednisone or prednisone equivalents, but longer acting synthetic steroids, uh, you know, it, it may not be enough. 
uh, in that patient, adjusting their basal insulin may be the way to go. That may help them. Um, the, the problem that you have to be careful about, though, is with something like prednisone, the effect, again, is going to mostly be through the day, and then it's going to kind of drop off overnight. So um, if somebody's on a lot of basal insulin, they're on glargine, and to treat the highs with the, with the prednisone, you just increase their glargine, uh, they're probably not going to be that well covered during the day, and they may get hypoglycemic the next morning. So it's nice to be able to use NPH because you're taking advantage of the sort of pharmacokinetics and dynamics of the drug to help you with covering the pathophysiology of the, of the steroid high. I think we should move on to talking about transitions for endo or Enzo, endo, Enzo. I'm, I'm looking at your super, for, for the audience, Dave's wearing a super endo shirt, which is, it says super endo and, and then has a Superman it's, logo uh, underneath it, which is, uh, which is fantastic. This, this shirt was given to me uh, by one of my friends in ACE, uh, one of the organizations I'm really involved in, Beth Welch. Uh, so uh, uh, props to Beth for the super endo shirt. Yeah, Beth sounds super cool. Beth, she if is. you ever wanted to send me one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it down. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's, let's talk about how are we going to transition Enzo? He's now, we've treated his pneumonia. We got him through. We gave him, we gave him some NPH each day for the few days he was getting steroids. And now he's ready to go home. He's wondering, am I going to be getting all this insulin at home as well? How, how do you have that conversation with patients? Yeah, I, I try to have it early. Uh, again, kind of going back to the first part of our discussion. Um, you know, if, if I think he's going to go home on insulin, then I need to start planting that seed early. I need to make sure that our amazing diabetes educators have time to come and show him how to use an insulin pen you know, the, the nurses on the floor may be able to show him how to give himself an injection, have him start giving himself some of the injections before he goes. Um, you know, if somebody's on a fair amount of insulin, uh, uh, if they're on mealtime insulin and basal insulin, uh, they're probably going to need to go home on insulin, uh, especially if they came in on three or four different medications and their A1C was greater than 8%. You know, that person, you could argue, probably would have benefited from some basal insulin to begin with. Um, maybe you could do the basal insulin uh, and add back his metformin and add the, you know, the empagliflozin and add the uh, dulaglutide and, and see how he does, you know, as long as you've got a good plan for follow-up. Um, uh, I, I, try, I try to be, I try to make it as simple as possible on discharge. Uh, it's really hard when you're discharged from the hospital and you get a discharge summary that's got 10 million things in your paperwork that you're all these new medicines, you know, you were there for your pneumonia and that's really what you're concerned about. Uh, the diabetes is sort of like a bystander. Um, so, you know, if you give people, um, a really complex correction scale and complex instructions with mealtime insulin, and some sort of complex NPH titration, uh, it's, it's too much. Uh, and I think we've learned from some of our post-operative clinics, patients come back and often they're not doing some of those things. You know, right. they kind of go back to basics and what's easiest. So making it as easy as possible for the person is important. I, I think in primary care, I, that's where, where I spend most of my time. Patients that are, I, I've had a bunch of 
especially young patients that are new diagnosis, they get discharged on basal bolus insulin and metformin. And they're just like, maybe they're taking one injection a day and they're taking the metformin. And a lot of them are sort of scared into really changing up their lifestyle and they do, they do okay. So I think, and, and our, my co-host Paul Williams, uh, who's not here, he always mentions that this, the, the four times a day, especially is, is a pretty rough thing. Right. And especially yep. for patients who were not on it before they came in. So I, I like the idea with this guy of if maybe, maybe we would send him out on a basal, but he just started on the dulaglutide. So maybe that's going to get him over the hump there. And um, I'm noticing now he's on citagliptin and dulaglutide, which so, is usually probably should just be on the metformin. And so I was, I, I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, we should, we should. As, I don't want people as, on two of those, those two so, agents. It doesn't make yeah. sense. So it's, it's definitely something that I see uh, folks that are on um, a DPP4 and a GLP receptor agonist. And there have been some studies that have looked at whether there's any additional benefit, uh, and there doesn't seem to be any benefit of the combination. The GLPs are so potent, um, and um, uh, and there's some potential increased risk for complications or side effects, you know, GI right. stuff. So it's be- I would go with the dulaglutide as long as he was tolerating it. And, and we should point out to the audience who can't see this, this, this gentleman was on a combination metformin slash citagliptin. So th- it would be easy to overlook that and just add the GLP-1 oh, sure. agonist on top and forget yep. that you, you would have to, you, but you should switch him over to the plain metformin. And, okay. Yeah. So, and and I'll, I'll take responsibility for this prescribing too. I'm a hospitalist. I don't do a lot of outpatient <laughs> diabetes med prescribing anymore. <laughs> so I apologize. But, I, I brought up a great, it brought up a great point, actually. I think that's the, I, I think it brought up a great point. Uh, we're going to send, so we're going to send him out on metformin and pagliflozin, dilaglutide, and maybe the basal insulin, depending on, probably we need a little bit more, like how long has he been on that, that regimen at home? And yeah. do we think it had enough time or do we think he's really going to need to go on, on the basal as well? And yeah. this is what, this is one of the things that I struggle with the most is when we're ready to transition patients out of the hospital and get them good follow-up with the primary care, but just deciding on what kind of an insulin regimen to send them home on if they've been on a decent amount while they're in the hospital. Yeah. And I, I will often make a, you know, we'll make a decision about whether it should be basal only or whether we think that they could do some meal time or whether they think we think that they could do um, a correctional scale as well with titration. But it's it seems very much um, just based on my my guess about how well they'll be able to do this as an outpatient. And I, I struggle to explain that to the trainees sometimes. I'm curious if you have a better way to individualize that or to make those decisions. Yeah, it, it all, I think, has to come out of the conversations that you have with the patient. Uh, you know, uh, and, I mean, you really have to take the time, sit down, explain to them uh, what, you know, I, I've seen conversations where, uh, you know, somebody will explain to the patient, you know, you're going to be doing insulin with each of your meals. You're going to be uh, doing this basal insulin, this long acting insulin. You're going to be checking your blood sugar four times a day. And then I'll, I'll kind of step in and say, so you understand we're saying that you're going to be doing four injections of insulin a day. And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, so like, you know, people are overwhelmed with all the information that you're giving them. So you really have to kind of make sure that, that they're on board. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of times when we're discharging people or giving them discharge recommendations, uh, you know, where everybody's busy, kind of going quickly, uh, 
but but I I try to think about that person sitting at home with their 20 page document and trying to make sense of what they're supposed to do. And so, you know, our, our, our nurse practitioners and the fellows and our residents do a really good job of making a handout for people that that's just focused on their insulin, printing it out, going back into the room after round, sitting down with the patient, explain, taking the time, you know, explaining it and going over it, answering questions that they have or that the family has, um, making sure they feel comfortable giving themselves injections and making sure that they know how to reach us afterwards. You know, we'll often tell people, um, you know, here's our number. There's always somebody that's on call. Again, it's typically one of our uh, uh, beautiful, amazing endocrine fellows. Um, and uh, they get the call and, and we know you were just in the hospital and this is what the discharge plan was and we can help you versus sometimes if they call their primary care doctor's office, you know, maybe they haven't gotten the discharge summary yet. They just don't know what's happened as well as the endocrine team does or maybe the inpatient team does. And so we, we try to make ourselves as available to people as we can through that transition time because it's a really hard time for patients, I think. Yep. And the, the follow-up needs to happen soon yep. afterwards, either with the endocrine team or with the primary care, just to make sure that they're doing okay. And exactly. They have, they got the supplies they were able to get, because sometimes they go to the pharmacy and they can't get the medication. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff that can happen there that, that can be bad. Yep. And, uh, I, I saw a patient one time at Cashlack uh, in the recent past that, uh, had been discharged and it had been like a month and they had not gotten their insulin and, and they were seeing in clinic and it, it was a month between the discharge and the, and you know, that's, I, I imagine that's a common story at other places. Not the first time it's happened to me. Yeah. And it was yeah. a patient who just wasn't plugged in yet. So I think that that's the, that's the tough thing when they're not plugged in. Yeah. So to, to, for this first part of the talk, is there anything that you really wanted the audience to remember, like uh, one or two take-home points? And then we're going to, of course, have a second part to this where we're going to get into more of the, the um, insulin uh, DKA and the more severe hyperglycemia and some of the pumps and things like that. Yeah, I think the, the, the key thing, again, is, uh, is being proactive uh, about the patient's care and their diabetes management and being patient-centered. Uh, really hearing their story, hearing what they're doing at home, hearing what their barriers to care may be with respect to diabetes management after they leave. Um, all of those things I think are key. So, you know, it's, it's basics of medicine. It's what we do, listening to the patient's story, uh, but really focusing it down on, you know, what, what, what causes their blood sugars to be high and low and then, and then helping them with that. Yeah. Well, that's great. We will, people will rejoin us for part two where we, where we get even deeper into some <laughs> severe hyperglycemia. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There you go. Your time to shine. <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. 
Yeah, Paul, I was going to let it go. If he did say yummy, there would have been no yummy. And <laughs> I was going to wait until somebody said something. I, I right. had all the patience in the world. I feel, I think it's like that butted and lost. Like if someone forgets to push it, something bad <laughs> might happen. <laughs> anyway, so we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And I wanted to give a special thanks to our producers and writers for this episode, Drs. Adam Borelski and Cyrus Askin, and to our whole team. Beth Garbatelli is our executive producer with production and editing support from the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Tima Karganov maintains our website. And Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Adam Borelski. Hospital Swiss Kid. And as always, <laughs> our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>